Welcome to episode 10. I first want to thank the first responders for playing their part on the front lines and sacrificing much more than we actually are at this time. I hope everybody's holding up. The change in weather has certainly been encouraging. This week, we have Kern Sheldon, who's a filmmaker out of West Virginia. He and his wife have had an incredible journey. Without any further ado, here's Kern Sheldon. So how did it all start? Uh, well, actually, I started making films more as a lifestyle change, I would think, than anything else. I was uh, working for a travel company in New York City as their content manager. So I was actually a writer, professional writing. I went to school for writing. Um, and I did photography as you know a weekend hobby, but nothing that serious. Um, and I just knew that you know, pretty soon after doing that and, you know, going to school for a few years that I don't really want to be in a nine to five and actually wanted to, you know, be out in the world and, and have as much sort of unique experiences and travel and adventure as I could. Um, and so I sort of use filmmaking as that, as that way to kind of create that lifestyle. Um, you know, as the content manager for this uh, travel company was called Wanderfly, they were eventually acquired by uh, TripAdvisor, but they were a startup and I was maybe the sixth team member. I was their uh, content manager, so I was doing all their blog posts, all their writing, but then also populating the site with content. And, you know, this is 2011, 2012, um, and I just saw sort of this huge need for higher quality video content. You know, this I think this is definitely before sort of the huge YouTube vlogger uh, explosion and obviously sort of the, the what became sort of like the cliche, you know, Vimeo staff pick um, type of short film. but. So I, I recruited a friend who kind of was feeling the same way. Neither of us really knew how to shoot video or, or do any filmmaking. And, you know, we got a couple DSLRs, him the 5D2 and me the 60D, and saved up just enough money to last us about eight months around Asia. And we decided to take off and we started making short films about fascinating people all around the world. And our goal was to make one film a week. So we'd shoot for one or two days and then the plan was, you know, we'd sit down for one day afterwards and edit a three minute film, four minute film and put it out in the world and just kind of keep doing that over and over again as we as we traveled through about 12 countries in nine months through Asia. Um, so it was definitely sort of a weird, unique, um, you know, film school by fire because every every time we went out and shot, we learned something new, you know. Whether that was, oh, like, you you know, you have to keep the 180 degree rule. And so, if, you know, a friend who watched one of our videos was like, you guys really need to get ND filters. <laughs> so, like, really kind of basic stuff. Um, but it was great to sort of, you know, learn on the fly because, you know, and as you edit your own stuff um, and, you know, you're doing all the sound, all the shooting, all the editing, you know, all those things, you know, they, I think you learn quite a bit quicker by doing that. So, uh, that was sort of the first yeah, two years of my filmmaking career was was that project and and that led to you know doing commercial work for different tourism companies speaking at conferences uh, we made an iPad app um, and designed that ourselves so it was it was a pretty uh, pretty exciting first two years of filmmaking for sure what came first your uh, story making chops or filmmaking chops I think I think it was story first just because you know through uh, college and then in my earlier career, I was a writer. So it was much more around, you know, telling stories through through writing. And so I think when I started doing film, I approached it in the same way. It was like, I'm trying to tell a story first and foremost. Um, and just, you know, the, the idea of capturing beautiful images or being, you know, technically savvy and, and creating something that is also fun and interesting to look at um, was sort of a byproduct of, you know, enhancing the story. And, and so, 
you know, it was kind of nice early on because we toyed with, you know, my buddy and I toyed with the idea of sort of doing that more vlogger thing where we were, you know, either personalities or, you know, and again, this is kind of before that really blew up. But, um, you know, ultimately we decided that we'd rather tell sort of deeper uh, stories about about other people and about other subjects and, you know, things going on in the world. And so it was very much more of, you know, let's tell good stories and, you know, highlight fascinating people and, um, you know, sort of create the visuals and, and, and learn the technical details of the craft, you know, as we went. Um, so I would definitely say, yeah, it was, it was story first, first and foremost. Uh, and also, you know, being the epicenter of the filmmaking world in West Virginia, um, how did you, <laughs> how did you, uh, it, uh how did you evolve then? Did you did you find commercial work to drive your narrative and uh, eventually documentary work, or did you say, "Man, I have a bend at doing documentary stuff"? Um, what came first? Yeah, um, it was everything kind of went hand in hand, which was kind of nice. It was all sort of naturally flowed, you know, one project into the other, uh, and each project sort of was able to uh, create more growth. And so we did that travel documentary series for about two years, made, you know, more than probably 50, 60 films. Um, and those were all short documentaries, right? So it's three minute documentaries about fascinating people, whether that's a scuba diver, an artist, a musician, um, and, you know, a bunch of different countries around the world. And then, um, my buddy actually decided he's, he was, he's very entrepreneurial. So, you know, for him, it was much more of an entrepreneur business and, you know, he started getting different ideas for different companies. So we actually started making, you know, luggage and doing a big Kickstarter. He got on Shark Tank. And so his life sort of took an unexpected turn, um, you know, sort of away from filmmaking. Uh, and so that, that kind of, you know, fizzled out our, our travel documentary series. Um, but then I met my current wife, um, who, I, who I had known for a little while, but she was the only other person I knew who was a filmmaker and was making documentary films. Um, and we started working together. And so, you know, after doing, and she was also doing a lot of uh, short form content at the time. And after doing that for a few years, we both decided, you know, I think to both expand our, our careers, but also tell deeper and longer stories. You know, we should try to tell either longer shorts or feature documentaries. Um, and so we sort of bounced around a few different ideas over the course of a couple of years. I did a, um, a 20 minute short film about the invasive lionfish in the Caribbean. Um, and then, you know, we're both from West Virginia, we're both West Virginia natives. You know, when the opioid crisis really started to peak in 2014, 2015, we started thinking, you know, someone else, you know, kind of needs to go back and, and tell this story from the ground. Because especially from a place like Appalachia and West Virginia in particular, you know, a lot of the narrative about this region is driven by drop-in journalists and parachute journalists where they come in, you know, they get their shot of their person overdosing or they get their, you know, their shot of kids without shoes, whatever it might be. And, you know, that's sort of like, oh, look how terrible it is here, you know, even though the opioid crisis was obviously nationwide. So we wanted to come back and tell a more positive story about, um, about that crisis. And so we made two short films or two films, one feature, one short, um, heroin and recovery boys as a sort of a, a, a uh, an attempt to, to shift the narrative away from sort of the bleak, you know, othering of a lot of the journalism that's coming out about Appalachia and more about the people who are on the ground trying to make a difference. And while still showing sort of the, the uh, destruction of the opioid crisis, um, you know, doing so in a way of, that showed that people were trying to help, that had a little bit more of a positive outlook and a little bit more of an uplifting outlook. Um, and so that, that sort of shifted us away from doing, you know, short form content where suddenly, you know, I was used to putting out something every week or every two weeks, you know, instead of filming for two or three years. And then also, you know, sort of editing and pitching as we went. 
um, you know, it's definitely a shift in, in mindset because you, you don't feel like you're completing anything, but at the same time, you know, when it does finally complete and finish, it's just this much bigger and more fulfilling feeling that you get um, from doing such a, such a long form piece of work, especially two of them at the same time. I'm amazed at uh, being able to carry it out uh, for a year and a half, two years, three years. Um, did you know pretty much that it would take this long? Were you kind of just on call for when these events took place? I assume that you said, well, we're going to be here at some of these meetings. Could you uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so there's there's two films, so listeners can know. One's called Heroin with an E on the end, um, and that's about three women in Huntington, West Virginia, uh, and that's a 38-minute or 39, 40-minute film, um, and it's sort of the epicenter of the opioid crisis in Huntington, West Virginia, and then the second one's called uh, Recovery Boys, which is about four guys going through a farming-based rehab, and that's a feature film, um, and that's also in West Virginia. And so sort of the approach for two Initially, what our thought was, you know, we first learned about this um, farming-based rehab called Jacob's Ladder through one of uh, Elaine, my wife's old professors, um, and he said, you know, it was, it was about a guy who's who had started a large regional chain of uh, urgent care centers called MedExpress. So if you're in like an 11-state region, you've probably been to a MedExpress. Um, and his son actually became addicted to heroin. And while he was trying to find help in West Virginia, there was just no long-term beds. And so, you know, after he, he had the resources and the, and the money to send his, his kid to uh, Arizona for, you know, a six to 12 month program for, to get him help and, you know, to get him sort of away from people, places and things, as they say in, in addiction. Um, and so, you know, he took it upon himself to create you know, the sort of one of the only, if the only sort of long-term um, rehabilitation centers in West Virginia. And when we learned about this story and we learned that he was going to open it, we thought it'd be really interesting to follow, you know, the first people through that program. So we actually got them painting the walls and renovating the homes that they, that they leased um, in this, uh, on this farm in Aurora, West Virginia. And we're there when the very first guy showed up. And so the process really was, you know, obviously get consent from the people who are coming into the program. Um, and they started putting it together, sort of their onboarding packet with the different people who are coming to the program saying, hey, we're making this documentary. You can either be a part of it or not. Um, and most people actually agreed. They thought it'd be you know, pretty interesting to be a documentary and, and um, agreed to it. But we lived about 45 minutes away from um, from the rehab, and so we would go every, you know, probably two or three days a week, and we did that for about nine months, um, and that allowed us to get a lot of different changes and a lot of pivotal moments. And we sat in all the all their meetings and all their therapy sessions, kids visits, and all those different things. And so, you know, it was really just you know showing up consistently and always sort of being present and having people be comfortable around us. Um, and and then when they uh, when the people we were following got out of rehab, you know, they sort of spread out across the state, but they're all you know fairly close by. And so we would just follow up with them and, and sort of see where they are and, and see how things were going. So during the actual production of, you know, it was probably 16 to 18 months from the, the first day of shooting until the last day of shooting, um, it was really just showing up consistently, you know, once or twice a week um, and, and making sure we were always there. I can't imagine the ratio of shooting that you had because you had to always more or less be rolling. Uh, did you do? Uh, did Did you go with one or two cams? We started with two cameras. I mean, we were we both had done you know documentaries in general, but we had not done as much of sort of that observational verite film. Recovery Boys has a little bit of voiceover in it, but it is 
95% verite, 95% observational. And so, you know, initially we went with two cameras um, and it was just my wife and I. And, you know, as, as we sort of went along, we realized, kind of realized, you know, one of us really needs to do sound because there, there's eight people in these meetings and while we can spread out and have two people and have two shotguns, you know, you're not always getting sort of the, you know, what the most important thing is in terms of audio and, and capturing story. So we did two cameras for probably four or five months and then switch to one camera. Um, and then in some certain situations we would still do two, but usually we did, yeah, one camera and uh, my wife Elaine ran sound. Were there, I'm sure a few technical challenges. Did you just basically go with, um, I, I don't imagine you had time to set up any lights or anything extra or even, you know, uh, modifiers. Did you basically just go as, as a package then? You had to always be ready to go and had enough uh, yep. to, to roll with. Yep. No, exactly. No, never, never set up any lights, modifiers, anything. We just, we just rolled one camera, one sound and just followed these guys through their lives. Cause in one moment they're in a meeting, the next moment they're, you know, walking outside, putting boots on and, and going to work in the farm. And, you know, so there's, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of movement, a lot of going on. And so we're just always sort of ready to film. Um, and that was similar with heroin as well. Heroin was, you know, uh, recovery boys was, you know, out of rehab for most of it. And so you kind of always knew where your subjects were. You always knew, you know, kind of what was going to happen that day because they had a schedule. And, and so you could sort of plan for, you know, what was going to happen where heroin was much more about women on the front lines. So, you know, people who are responding to overdoses, people who are trying to get and uh, help women out of um, sex work that support their, their addiction. And so it was much more of a, you know, you don't really know what's going to happen day to day. And so you're just sort of, you know, mirroring and following these three women. Um, and it became, you know, much more of a always be ready to run, always be ready to go. I and mean, we, we spent, you know, hours and hours and hours just sitting in a fire department sort of waiting for, you know, calls to come in of potential overdoses. And so, you know, a lot of that was just kind of hanging out and waiting, um, you know, ready to grab the camera and run. So, um, yeah, it was definitely it was definitely two very different sort of modes of, of filming, but both were similar in the fact that, you know, it was, it was very observational, ready to shoot at any moment and, you know, not setting anything up. You know, if we miss something, we miss something and we just kind of, and even now we still sort of film in that way. Like, you know, it's, it's our responsibility to capture the action on, on, on screen. It's not, you know, the characters, you know, who's are living out their lives often, you know, very difficult circumstances. It's not their responsibility to, you know, do something again in our, in our opinion. And so we were always very much of, you know, if we don't get it, we don't get it, but it's our responsibility to get it. Um, and that's how we approach both of those films. You know, to that end, then, did you almost have to always be rolling and and also sound rolling most of the time to at least cover you that way? Uh, was that your thought? Uh, no, we, we wouldn't roll constantly. We You pretty um, much knew when it was coming on then. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were definitely always ready. Like I always, I guess the camera was always on, let's say, and you know, I was always ready to push record, but I wasn't always recording. Um, but we were definitely always, always ready. I mean, at the rehab things, you know, you start getting into a rhythm and you start realizing kind of when things might happen, um, just as you sort of see their day-to-day life play out, you know, it's a fairly consistent, consistent, um, you know, lifestyle for a lot of those guys. And so, but, you know, during heroin, you know, a lot of it is if you do go into a situation, then yeah, you're just pushing record and letting it roll and trying to cover and, and, and film it as to the best of your ability. Cause you know, you're in often high stress situations, you know, um, for example, people responding to an overdose and you have EMS there and firefighters there and obviously someone's life on the line. And so, you know, you're, you're not really thinking, 
um, so much about, you know, composition and is this the, you know, the perfect shot, you know, often it's just me looking and making sure the little red lights blinking, you know, just to make sure that you're capturing the moment that you're there to capture. Um, and so in those moments, it's definitely very much a, you know, observe and, and just capture what you can. I'm sure there were moments where you go, gosh, darn, I wasn't framed right, not in focus or just all like, like you referred to just miss the moment. Correct. And you just said, well, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get, we'll get another one. Is that, was that your attitude? Cause there's no do-overs. You couldn't say, Hey, could you stand there again? Can you come through this door again? You were just pretty much verite most of the time. Oh, right. No, exactly. And, and we were, um, I guess, fortunate from a sort of technical standpoint, or at least from an observational standpoint, that luckily when we did get, um, you know, the, the calls that, that came in, whether it was an overdose or, you know, someone responding to an emergency, that um, luckily we did a fairly good job of covering those, those events. And, you know, didn't, as long as we were there, we didn't miss um, kind of what we needed to capture. And so we were luckily in that situation. I mean, there are obviously other situations that, you know, we're like, oh, man, we you know, missed that and, and can't do it over. Um, but we we're able to capture enough to to sort of complete the film that we wanted to complete. Kern, when you were building these stories, uh, you had to pretty much uh, build the airplane as it flew. Did you already have sort of an outline what you needed to get out uh, for this documentary? When did you know you were done filming? especially for recovery boys when it was such a, a long a year and a half commitment, two year commitment uh, for that. Two years. Yeah. Wow. I mean, from the first day we shot until it was released it was about two and a half years production, including editing was about two years. Um, so the sort of the full production took about two years. And that was actually, it was a, it was a question we uh, talked about a lot because, you know, as the guys came out of rehab, you know, a couple of them did really well and, and excelled in a couple others, you know, didn't, didn't do as well and relapsed. And that's very common and very normal. Um, and you sort of start seeing these repeating patterns and people who are, you know, work in the substance use disorder field will talk about it a lot of, you know, that you kind of see these patterns of, you know, people sort of falling off the map, making excuses, relapsing, kind of coming back. Um, and, you know, we actually kept filming quite a bit more than what we actually showed in the, the film. But we realized, you know, once once patterns had sort of um, repeated themselves a couple times and, you know, either for those who, you know, who are still struggling, um, you know, we thought, OK, we don't need to kind of keep showing showing this pattern. Right. This is this is something that's that could happen again. But, you know, right now, at this point in their you know, life, this seems like a good spot to, to end. And if, and if you watch the film, you know, spoiler alerts, but one of the, the, uh, the ending scene is one of the guys coming back to the rehab. Um, and we wanted to end on that moment because, you know, for, for people who are struggling with addiction, that is often, you know, sort of a, it's just a reality, right? You, you kind of relapse, you struggle and you come back to rehab. Um, and so this cycle of, you know, what, the sort of the entrapments of addiction and how difficult it is to get out of that addiction. You know, the guys, you know, who did really well, didn't go back to their hometowns, right? They didn't go back to the, to the people they used to use with. They didn't go back to families that potentially are also using. And so, you know, you see, you know, that, that happened in the film where, you know, the two guys who went to a new town who, who try to build a new life were able to be successful. And those who went back to sort of their hometown into the same um, environments are the ones that, that's, that struggled again. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you either see sort of that continuous uh, cycle or on the other hand, you see them like, oh, OK, these guys look sort of steady in their recovery now. Um, and we can sort of continue to follow that and you know, show them working and you know, creating this friend group and, and being part of a community. Um, but once we kind of felt like, you know, the, the two that were doing well have sort of become steady in their recovery and the other two sort of were still in that 
that cycle, but um, you know, maybe still have that opportunity to be, you know, steady in their recovery. We thought, you know, that was, that was a good time to, to stop and, and start editing. Well, and speaking of editing, then was your workflow uh, filling for those two or three days going back and editing for the rest of the time? Or did you have your daily lives to get to? Uh, how did, how did that yeah. work? So while we were still, while we were shooting recovery boys, you know, I was still doing commercial work. I do a lot of commercial work for either tourism companies, travel companies, things like that. Um, we also do short films, short docs for different outlets. So we still had other work that we were doing, um, while, while filming because for the first year, maybe 12 to 14 months of both heroin and recovery boys, um, we didn't have any funding. It was all just our time. And so we were, we were taking other work to, to supplement, um, you know, doing the documentary work. Um, and so, but we would, yeah, we definitely, I mean, we were pitching, we were, you know, creating decks, we were, uh, you know, applying for funding. And so we would edit and we edited, you know, quite a few of the scenes and stuff that we, um, that we, that we did end up, uh, in the film as well, along with our editor. Once we actually did get funding, we hired, uh, Penelope Falk out of New York city for recovery boys, who's a great editor and, and worked with her as well. But, you know, it's sort of in order to pitch and in order to try to get into pitches and get funding, there was a lot of editing that had to be done. And so we were sort of editing as we went and building the story as we went, which is also nice because then you realize kind of what you have so that when you go back to shoot, you know, a few days later, you realize like, okay, we need to, you know, either just pick up this shot or let's follow this storyline, you know, because we were following, you know, probably eight characters. And so depending on kind of how their stories evolved in terms of how their story arcs evolved over the time of shooting, you know, some characters obviously became, um, you know, more readily um, apparent for a, a strong story arc throughout the film um, than others. And so, you know, being able to edit as we went and being able to review footage and, and do that work really, really helped in order to sort of um, uh, dictate, you know, the type of stuff that we follow and, and film. So the old chicken or the egg uh, thing uh, question is, did you, you know, in order to get funding to get a good editor, I, I believe in staying in one's lane. It seems like you decided that let's get an editor in here uh, to, to kind of help us through that process. Uh, how did you know when to pull that trigger? Because, you know, obviously you have to pay for the editor's time. Were you able to get funding at that time to move it along? Because you've also got to be pitching at the same time to make sure you uh, that, that your film will be received. So uh, did you, were you wearing several hats? Were you always trying to juggle all this at once? Yeah. So yeah, we were, we were juggling everything at once. I mean, again, it was just my, my wife and I, so we were basically producing, shooting, editing, pitching, doing the decks, pretty much doing everything that is involved in a, in a uh, documentary production. Um, and we had a couple, a couple really good experiences with pitching. We got into uh Brit doc, good pitch, which is uh, this, this pitch center where five, six films basically get seven minutes to go in front of a crowd of 300 and pitch their pitch their film and kind of what they want to accomplish. And the idea is that in this crowd are all, almost everyone there are, you know, invitees. And so they're funders or publishers or different people who, um, you know, are, are interested in, in supporting documentaries. And so we were able to raise some money at Good Pitch, but we also, um, you know, got the attention of a couple couple different outlets, one of those being Netflix. And, and we actually knew one of the executive producers at Netflix um, who, who used to, he started the New York Times Top Docs program. And my wife and I had made, you know, three or four different New York Times Top Docs um, for him. And so when he went to Netflix, he'd been sort of tracking the film. Um, and I think, you know, getting the good pitch and getting the interest of some other people within the Netflix team 
uh, sort of gave them the confidence to, to take a look at what we were doing and, and you know, see if it was something for their platform. So about 13, 14 months into production, uh, maybe just, just over a year, then Netflix actually came on board and, and financed the film. And so we were able to create a Netflix original. And that obviously gave us the funding to you know, hire, ed- hire an editor and obviously everything else down the line um, in terms of hiring colorist, sound designer and all that thing. But obviously also gave us, you know, actually paying ourselves day rates. And so we, we were able to take less work um, as a result. And, um, you know, that obviously was a huge, a huge, huge, huge um, development was getting Netflix on board. And so once that happened, then we were sort of all in on, on the documentary for the next, uh, yeah, 16 months. So did it happen for both films then? So, yeah, so actually they came on for Recovery Boys first. Um, and then Heroin, we had filmed... Because initially we were going to do sort of one film that mashed the two together. And so on one side, you'd have like the recovery aspect of the rehab. And then on the other side, you would have sort of the front lines, the crisis itself, right? Like, what does it look like, you know, people, you know, overdosing and people struck in, stuck in addiction and kind of what that does to a community. And so our initial thought was we'll put those two together. And so we had filmed probably 10 days um, for all like women and heroin. But then we sort of put that on a drive and really just sort of focused on the rehab because we realized the stories that were coming out of there were, were very full, very vibrant, and could easily sustain a feature on its own. Um, but then it was the Center for Investigative Reporting. Um, and now, now it's called Reveal. But they put out a pitch for um, a short film, funding for short film about women making change and then directed by a woman in since my, my wife was a director, we uh, we pitched to them and they were actually came back and funded funded the film, not not entirely and fully, but um, enough to also start focusing on, on that side. And so we went back and filmed another 20 days over four or five months for heroin. Um, and that was sort of simultaneously the same time that Netflix was coming on board for Recovery Boys. And as we were finishing um, heroin, we... We actually went just went to Netflix because we were, you know, this had been three or four months after they had started supporting Recovery Boys, and said, "Hey, we have this other film that's, you know, not in conflict. It could be really complimentary." And they just really, really liked it that one as well. And so they just, they it wasn't our film at the time. Center for Investigative Reporting had the rights, so they just bought it from Center for Investigative Reporting. But that's how they both became uh, Netflix originals. Yeah, it, it was. It's always interesting to see how that came about. I was trying to get my head around how you actually did both at once, and it seemed like they were along the same t- the same timeline. And uh, to manage yep. one film is enough, let alone having two. So that that's awesome. It was yeah, it was fun. And I think actually, I mean, to some degree, it was because it was the same topic. It was it was kind of nice bouncing between those two worlds, um, just to see. It's almost, it was almost like making one large film that just happened to be you know separated out and and. Uh, you know, sort of compliment complimenting themselves. I, I think um, uh, uh, the uh, the audience members would be interested to see how um, you then, if, when you interfaced with Netflix, how, were you able to then also go uh, along the uh, uh, you know the film uh, the, the film circuit, and uh, how did you go about promoting all that? Yeah, in terms of like film festivals, film and festival things? circuit, correct? Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I mean, Netflix, I, mean, I think they're, they're kind of known for not doing a ton of film festivals, but they like to have at least you know, a, a nice launch festival. And Heroin, because it came out so much earlier, even though we started on Recovery Boys first and Netflix came on board Recovery, Recovery Boys first, we were able to, to sort of get Heroin done um, quicker. Just, you know, it's a 40-minute it's a short rather than a 90-minute feature. Um, 
So, you know, they Netflix kind of took that on their own. So, you know, once we decided that, you know, Heroin was going to be a Netflix original, they started, you know, reaching out to different film festivals to see if, you know, anyone wants to premiere the film. And we were lucky enough to um, be accepted and premiered at uh, Telluride Film Festival, which was a pretty surreal experience because it's very much a, it's not a necessarily a documentary film festival. I think there was only a couple feature docs and then one other uh a documentary short and the year we were there but it was you know it's very much a um it's very much a festival that is sort of like the the premiere for lots of you know academy award hopefuls um and so that was the year of you know gary oldman playing winston churchill and he was there in the christian bale film uh hostiles and things and so it's very much like a, almost a celebrity film festival so it was kind of strange and surreal to be to premiere there but and the nice thing about heroin was because it's, you know, it's an optimistic story because it's sort of a, a hero story. Um, and it's a, at the time, you know, when we launched sort of the big news story of America was the opioid crisis. And so I think Netflix was looking to to um, sort of expand the amount of people who would see the film on the platform by also getting heroin into all these different film festivals. So we were able to do sort of a not necessarily a traditional film festival run, but, you know, like the Meet the Press Film Festival and the Obama Foundation summits and sort of all these different things about people who are talking about the issue. And because the issue was, you know, so prevalent at the time, it was very much sort of a journalistic um uh, you know, film festival circuit. And so while we premiered at Telluride, we, a lot of the ones we played at were, you know, sort of individual, you know, journalism-esque film festivals. And then we also just did tons and tons of community screenings. Uh, the one nice thing about, you know, working with Netflix is, you know, as long as you don't charge uh, admission, you are allowed to show the film as an educational tool to, you know, as many places you want, wherever you want. And so, I mean, I, I won't have the numbers in front of me, but Heroin and Recovery Boys have both been seen, you know, around Central Appalachia um, and across the, the country in tons and tons and tons of community screenings where they're able to download a uh, educational guide that we made for both films and have discussions and and people would usually watch the film and then they'd have a panel from their local community of five or six different people um, who talk about sort of how the opioid crisis is affecting their community uh, specifically and they sort of use our educational guide um, to to uh, you know foster those those conversations and so that was really really cool to see is you know while we didn't have sort of a traditional film festival run for either film um, you know, we got into a few film festivals, but then just did hundreds of community screenings across the country, which which was awesome to see. So obviously you had a lot of eyeballs on it. And uh, then it leads me to, to the next kind of surprise for you that uh, you were actually you actually found out that you were um, uh, nominated for uh, for an Academy Award and uh, at least uh, put on the shortlist. So describe that journey. Oh, the yeah, the Oscars, the Oscars were awesome. It was again, it was sort of a sort of a surreal event because um, you know the the short documentary category. I think you know some of the shorts obviously are what people call the, the bathroom break category. <laughs> so um, it's it's very much a you know you, do, you obviously the Academy is fairly large, but it's the it's the few different categories that not everyone can watch, and so you're not really sure who's seen your movie or you know who who can have obviously vote for you. Um, but just being, I mean, obviously just being there, you know, 
uh, Netflix had a publicist and, you know, they were like, you have to be the very first people on the red carpet because if, you know, by the time the celebrities arrive, you know, somewhat fashionably late, you know, nobody in the line is going to interview you or ask you questions. And so, you know, you sort of show up with all the other short documentaries and short, you know, short animation and short narratives, um, you know, for the first hour of the red carpet, it's just sort of you, you know, that, that group. Um, and then you'll, you know, you get some interviews because people are just either warming up and it's just, I mean, the red carpet's insane because it's, uh, I don't know how, how long, 100 yards, 200 yards of just reporters and cameras, um, you know, yelling, yelling just for you to look at them and you have no idea where it's coming from. And, and obviously it's, it's sort of a weird thing because you, you yourself are not a celebrity, um, but it's, it's a pretty cool experience. And then obviously, you know, being at the Academy Awards, I was just, I was just excited that uh, Sufjan Stevens was performing. So that was, that was my main uh, thing to be excited about there. Uh, and so it was, it was cool though. I mean, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. Unfortunately we didn't win, but, um, you know, just, just being there and being nominated and now having that sort of as your first line of your, uh, bio until you die is pretty nice. <laughs> that, that is true. Well, how did you, how, how did you propel yourself after that? Like, I, I knew you realized that you, you, you didn't get uh, nominated or you were nominated and said, well, that's it. Uh, I, I can, I can go just, you know, maybe go farming or do something different. What, what was your next step after that? Did you use that as an impetus to do other projects? Cause I know you're, you're busy doing other things. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, sort of while all that was happening, I started working on a project, you know, as we had finished editing and was, we're waiting for recovery boys to come out and heroin was sort of doing the, the festival thing and also the award thing. Um, you know, I started working on a, what I, sort of the same idea is like, okay, I'm going to give myself a couple of years and, and do a long-term project. Um, and I just really wanted, you know, sort of, as I said in the beginning of the podcast, you know, my initial um, sort of entry into filmmaking was around sort of lifestyle, sports, adventure, and travel. And so I wanted to sort of get back into that space, um, you know, as much as possible. And so I started filming uh, different combat sports around Appalachia, so MMA and boxing, and just found some really, really incredible characters. And that was really just, you know, driving to different boxing gyms and, and just meeting people, filming them. Um, and just found some great characters and started following, you know, this collection of professional boxers in Eastern Kentucky, which is a, a very sort of strange world. Um, and just sort of filming that for, for, I mean, I've, I've filmed probably a year and a half, two years, probably 60 days over the course of that time. Um, and initially conceived it as a, as a doc series. Once I sort of realized that there was a, you know, small collection of characters, um, and we were able to go and actually pitch that to a, a quite a few different out, outlets and it looked like it was going to be picked up by one of them. Um, and we were in contract negotiations with them for about four months before ultimately the, the deal fell through, um, which was unfortunate, but you know, at, at, when it looked like the deal was happening, I just did a, a lot of filming and again, it's, you know, it's, it's my time. And so, um, and my wife came and helped out and did, and did either second camera or sound and had a couple friends come help out as well. So. That was sort of the big project I've been working on for the last two years, um, and currently in talks to to potentially sell it and publish it with a couple places. Um, just trying to figure out what the best avenue is for it. Um, currently, it's sort of set up as as two documentary shorts, two 38 minute sort of long doc shorts, um, and so we'll kind of see see what happens there. But other than sort of the documentary world, I mean, some really cool opportunities sort of popped up because of of those two Netflix originals. Um, one being that we did a my wife and I co-directed a uh, music video for John Prine, um, and he wanted to do something around around the opioid crisis, and so we sort of conceived of this um, idea based on 
um, you know, one of his songs and we were able to do a, a music video for him. Um, I've continued to do commercial work uh, and travel and tourism um, and, and been able to do a lot of that. So, and then I've also, you know, the nice thing is, you know, being in the doc community, I was, I was the director of photography on, on both heroin and recovery boys. Um, I was, I've been able to do, you know, different DP work on different documentaries and things like that. So currently sort of, sort of thinking like kind of what's, what's that next thing, thing, you know, getting, making sure getting the boxing film um, or collection of films or series out there. Uh, is sort of goal number one right now, but then it's sort of looking forward and, and sort of seeing what's next. Um, and yeah, I actually haven't quite really decided what avenue to take. Um, as much as I love branded uh, documentaries, I also am really interested in doing, you know, sort of that documentary branded content work um, and know quite a few people in that in that avenue. Um, just because I, I mean, I think is kind of how I started doing this. I'm very interested in sort of the output. Um, and so doing something for two or three years can sometimes be mentally, psychologically, and physically exhausting. Um, and it's this definitely sort of this delayed gratification that you know may never come. You know that's kind of the, the scary part about filmmaking in general, but and also you know documentary work is, you know if you can hit on something that is sort of in the zeitgeist like the opioid crisis and you, you are able to create a great film, you know you you can potentially get you know a lot of attention for it. But at the same time, if you do something that you know maybe right now isn't what people are looking for, even if it's you know as of as of the same quality. Um, you know, it, it might just sort of live on a drive unless you, you yourself can put it out and get it out there. So, you know, being a, being nominated for an Academy Award or we also, luckily enough to, we actually won an Emmy as well for heroin. So, um, you know, that doesn't al always sort of uh, go into, you know, easy and easy success after that. I think no matter, no matter what happens, you know, you have to sort of continue to prove yourself in the filmmaking world. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of keep making content and keep, keep following things that I enjoy and, and yeah. That's kind of it's kind of where I'm at now. I, I mean, imagine a lot of it has to be self-driven. It's something that you have to love doing on a day-to-day -day basis, and I think many filmmakers still enjoy that. And so, as you as you alluded to, it it has opened some doors. Uh, do you do you find that uh, through through um, your credentialing now uh, on where you where you've reached that you're you have at least uh, Netflix's ear, or maybe if you approach A twenty four or any of the other film studios, that at least they'll give you a listen. Correct? Is that yeah. is that how yeah. you present yourself? Or you know, <laughs> this is current. I'm a, okay. how do you, how do you approach yourself? It's usually through email or just uh, through your signature, obviously. Yeah, no, I mean, we were lucky enough when Heroin got nominated for Academy Award, a few different agents uh, reached out, um, ex especially since my wife was the director on both those projects. Um, we sort of have a, a co-agent, if you will, out of uh, UTA, United Talent Agency. And so when we started pitching the boxing thing, you know, when you have someone sort of speaking on your behalf, you know, they obviously talk to these different outlets and, and distributors and buyers consistently and constantly. And so we were able to sort of get in the room with, you know, 10 different companies um, and, and pitch our, our series idea. And so like that helps definitely get into sort of the, the front door. And a lot of that, obviously all that stuff's connected, right? Being nominated for Academy Award, having two Netflix originals, and then, you know, having an agent, sort of those three things combined um, will sort of at least get you in the room. And I, and I think that's kind of what, what the success of those two other films have, has really, um, you know, sort of done is it's at least giving you the ear of people who, you know, will be interested in, in hearing what you have to do or interested in what you're working on. I think the the tough part about um, you know kind of the our career in general is being and living in West Virginia. You know, a lot of the stuff that we do is self-directed. 
Um, you know, I think if you live in LA or New York and we've, you know, we've discussed it, um, you know, you could obviously get a lot more work in, in different avenues, whether it's being a DP or being a producer or helping out other people's films. But because in, at least in a pretty wide area, there aren't a lot of people making, you know, documentary films or, or filmmakers in general. I mean, in West Virginia, I could count them all on one hand, I, I think. So, um, and that's, you know, sort of the same for most of Appalachia. And so... It really does have to be self-directed, which, you know, both I think my wife and I are actually um, totally fine with because the stuff that we do that that is, you know, our ideas that we complete and we put out, we actually enjoy the, a, the process a lot more, but also just the output a lot more. You know, when we do stuff that's work for hire, it's, it's you know, work, like working with any clients or collaborator, whether it's, you know, documentaries or commercial is, you know, they'll have sort of what, you know, their say and what they want uh, the film to feel like and be like. And, and that doesn't always line up with sort of your creative vision, um, where if you kind of create something on your own, at least in the, you know, for the first part, you know, you've already sort of shaping that. And so if someone likes that, then they obviously already like the direction you're going in. Um, and that definitely helps sort of in the creative conversations moving forward. And uh, since we both sort of started our careers making our own films, you know, before anyone took notice for, you know, years, um, it's, I think it's difficult for us now to, to sort of give that up because it is such a, a nice process to be able to be able to creatively control what you want to make. Is there anything you enjoy watching or you get your inspiration from or um, uh, films that you've yeah, watched that you've liked? That's good. My guilty pleasure, I guess. I, I, I actually love Marvel movies. I can't, I can't stop. <laughs> so I watch every Marvel movie there is. Um, currently watching Fleabag, which is fantastic. I have I put off watching that for a while. Um, I don't actually, I should watch more than I do. I, I don't tend to watch a ton of, um, a ton of doc series or, or, uh, TV in general or series, you know, I have my two or three favorite shows and I'll, when they come out, I'll binge them and, and then sort of not watch much for the, a few months. Um, and then, but otherwise I just sort of watch individual films. There's not anything specific in terms of, of, uh, of series or, or doc series that I, I really sort of get into. But if you have any suggestions, I will gladly take them. Because currently in self quarantine, so <laughs> I got some I got some time on my hands. I have a couple. So, Curran, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Uh, where can we find you? Uh, best place to find me would be on my website, CurranSheldon.com, and that's C-U-R-R-E-N Sheldon.com. Um, I actually quit all of social media about a year and a half ago, and so you can't really find me in too many places. But that is that is one place you can find me. Well, thanks again. No problem. Thanks for having me on. I want to thank everybody for the support and listening. I encourage everybody to continue to stay positive and fine-tune your art and looking forward to what's ahead. Until next time.